The following talk was given at the Sati Center for Buddhist Studies in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at sati.org. So welcome to everyone. Nice to see you. I'm um, delighted that you're here to explore these five Dharma resources, as I'm calling them. And we'll see what that means as the class goes along. Um, as you can see, the sessions are being recorded and they should be posted before the next session. However, I do hope that you'll intend, attend in person because your presence matters and there's uh, will make it a richer experience and the others will benefit from your presence. Okay, so this, um, oh, and there will be some readings before each session. You, you should have gotten a couple of them, nothing onerous, um, but there will be uh, more before the, um, you know, some each week before the next upcoming sessions also. So then let's dive in. This set that we're looking at, this set of five resources is uh, faith or confidence, virtue, learning, generosity, and wisdom. Those are the, the five. And these five are praised in a whole bunch of texts, actually. Uh, they're praised in a wide range of ways in the Pali Canon. And that, for example, they're praised as inner wealth, as fortification of mind, as evidence of spiritual growth, um, objects of skillful recollection, and qualities of mind that support a better rebirth. It's a pretty wide range, you know, that's associated with this particular set of five. And yet it's not a, it's not a very widely known list. Uh, I don't, I haven't heard it taught very often. Um, and yet there are at least 10 suttas that uh, talk about it in this wide range of ways. So I thought it would be worth uh, delving into this to see uh, its multifaceted nature and to try to understand uh, how it is that it functions in our practice and how can it be useful and beneficial. So just as a little kind of um, orientation to the way the class will be run, each session is going to have uh, two different themes so one of them will be a theme related to how this set of five could be a resource, you know, some aspect of, of that. Welcome to the folks who are just joining. Um, so there will be something related to, you know, to the list itself, uh, some, some facet of it, essentially. And then the second theme of each session will be some method by which we can engage with the suttas as a support for our practice. So that wouldn't be specific to the items on this list, but we're kind of using the list as, um, you know, material as a, using the occasion of having this list for how can sutta study support our practice in some way. And we'll look at three different ways that we can engage with the suttas um, in order to use them as part of our path. They're really not meant to be just uh, intellectual exercises, essentially. So um, regarding the first topic for today, you know, the way that we're going to talk about the list, uh, we'll be looking at these five as forms of wealth, which you may have gathered from the reading list that was sent. There were a couple of suttas sent. And these are, so then 
you know, how are these Dharma resources? They're in the literal sense of resources like our wealth. These are a superior form of resources compared to more mundane resources that we might normally think about. Things we would usually think of as wealth. These are considered to be you know, a better aspect of that Dharma wealth, if you will. So these five might be also called, I don't know, true wealth or genuine wealth, something like that. So I want to start then with a, a story that comes from the commentaries. And it's a story of the follower and supporter of the Sangha, whose name was Anatta Pindika. How many people have heard of Anatta Pindika? Have you heard that name? Yeah, I see a few hands. Um, so he was uh, a, one of the wealthiest donors to the Buddhist Sangha at the time of the Buddha. So he knew the Buddha. He knew all the monks. He was delighted that, you know, the um, his following was growing. And he um, he was a wealthy Brahmin. And he spent at one point uh, three-fifths of his fortune to build a monastery for the Buddha and his monks. And then he um, also had already lent out another fifth of it to somebody, you know, sort of uh, loaned it out. And then, um, and then the loan wasn't repaid. The person defaulted on it. And so he only had one fifth of his earnings of his whole fortune left. And that, it is said in the myth, was washed out to sea. So he sort of instantly went from being one of the wealthiest donors who um, had been giving, you know, lavish meal donations and who built this monastery. But then uh, he himself became very poor uh, quite quickly. He still donated uh, what he could, but all he could do was serve the monks a broken rice gruel. But it was the best that he could do as he was uh, so poor. So that's our kind of introductory scene. And, you know, we know, as we hear this, we do know that material wealth is unreliable. It can be hard to get. It can be easy to lose. And it's subject to many forces over which we don't have that much control. So, yeah, Natapindika chose to spend three-fifths of his fortune in this way to make a big donation. But then he didn't know that uh, the other person was going to default on the loan or that there was going to be a natural disaster that destroyed uh, the rest of his wealth. So, you know, many spiritual traditions remind people of this, let's say, of the unreliability of material wealth. And they also talk about various kinds of inner wealth that are not only more reliable, but also inherently more valuable. So the Buddha was right in line with uh, these other traditions, and we talk quite a bit about this. And our, our group of five is just one way, one way that he talked about uh, this inner wealth that many spiritual traditions talk about. So two-fifths of Anattapindika's wealth was washed away and taken by others. And the, the Buddha actually defined the ways in which our wealth can be lost. <laughs> you might be interested to know he put out a list. He said, fire, flood, kings, thieves, and hateful heirs. How about that? So we might add um, global pandemic and a few other things in the modern world. Um, so I particularly thought about this, this sutta, the one that we'll talk about today, that's called um, Wealth 
AN547. I thought about it at the beginning of the pandemic. You know, what forms of wealth, in my life at least, were totally undiminished by this very significant change in outer circumstances? So again, we'll, we'll look through this list of five, which is faith or confidence, virtue, learning, generosity, and wisdom. And let's talk about how these are defined in the Buddhist teachings and how they can serve uh, both the individual and society. You know, how are they valuable? Why would we call them something that's a valuable resource? So starting with confidence or faith, the Pali word for that is uh, sadha. And I'll just read from the text. It says, and what? It says bhikkhus, but we could say practitioners. That's meant to be all of us. Uh, what is the wealth of faith? Here, a noble disciple is endowed with faith. He, or we could say one, um, places faith in the enlightenment of the Tathagata thus. The blessed one is an arahant, perfectly enlightened, accomplished in true knowledge and conduct, fortunate, knower of the world, unsurpassed trainer of persons to be tamed, teacher of devas and humans, the enlightened one, the blessed one. This is called the wealth of faith. It's quite, um, you know, maybe it sounds kind of religious sounding for those who have that background. Um, and you may not like the word faith, which I sometimes use just because it's easier to say than confidence, but I also, I also just like, like, have come to like the word. So, but we don't have to, we don't have to use that word. We could say trust, we could say confidence. What I want to point out, and one of the reasons I read that passage is it actually starts, the first phrase is important. It says, he places trust in the enlightenment of the Tathagata, thus the Tathagata is the Buddha. So it doesn't say that we're offering blind devotion to a religious figure. We are placing our confidence that uh, the enlightenment is possible. You know, the Buddha was a human being. And so we trust that that, did, that his practice actually worked. And if it was true for him, that the, you know, the follow-on is it could be true for us too. So it points toward a, a sincere acknowledgement of higher possibilities for the mind. It's the very opposite of things like cynicism or sarcasm or other ways of diminishing our own or others' potential. So we recognize, uh, to use another phrase from the uh, Buddhist text, we recognize that there are things that are lofty. There are other texts that say there are beings who ins are inspired by things that are lofty. And so, and that's one of the you know ways that we help Others is if we engage in these practices and come to embody more lofty qualities that can be inspiring for people. And that's helpful. So that's the way I would say that this is valuable is that we offer something uh, genuine. We have a, a genuine sense of care for ourselves, possibility for ourselves. We're not living with cynicism, sarcasm, depression, you know, um, not believing that there's any possibility for living a good and meaningful life. So that's the wealth of sadha, faith or confidence. <clears throat> and then the second one is virtue. And the um, Pali word is sila. 
sometimes translated as ethics or morality. I know morality can be another one of those words. Um, so we can read again here. A noble disciple abstains from the destruction of life, abstains from taking what is not given, abstains from sexual misconduct, abstains from false speech, and abstains from intoxicants, which are the basis for heedlessness. So, you know, there's a sense that, um, you know, ethical conduct immediately protects other beings. These qualities are relational. And it also protects the person who is engaging or at least attempting these um, five main qualities of ethics. Because when we are at least intending to be this way, then we have what's called the the bliss of blamelessness or the protection of blamelessness. And it doesn't mean that we've never done anything that was challenging or that we regret. Everybody has that. But if we were sincerely trying and if we uh, sincerely, you know, if we do make a mistake, we sincerely acknowledge that and try to figure out what we can do, then um, we can feel blameless about our way of being in the world. So virtue is actually considered to be a powerful condition for happiness that endures even when conditions change. Uh, So, you know, it's something that where if our wealth is washed away or something else comes about, uh, just knowing that we have, uh, we're possessed of our good intentions and our uh, commitment to not lying, not stealing, not killing, et cetera, that's something that stays with us. It's something, it's an inner form of wealth. And we need people in this world who are genuinely positive, genuinely bringing that integrity to the world, and not the fake positive of, you know, keeping up appearances or something, but, you know, genuinely um, committed to these things, genuinely possessed of well-being. And ethics can do this. It's a deep form of well-being, in fact. So then um, we go on to the third one, which is kind of an interesting one, right? Learning. And the the word there is uh, sutta, S-U-T-A, not the same as S-U-T-T-A, completely different derivation. Um, so it means, uh, it actually means heard. The word sutta, S-U-T-A, comes from the verb sunati, which means to hear, and since the past participle, so it means something that was heard. Um, So again, reading, and what is the wealth of learning? Here, a noble disciple has learned much, remembers what he has learned, and accumulates what he has learned. Those teachings that are good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end, with the right meaning and phrasing which proclaim the perfectly complete and pure spiritual life, such teachings as these he has learned much of, retained in mind, recited verbally, mentally investigated, and penetrated well by view. Wow, it's a lot. (laughs) You know, it sort of sounds um, a little surprising. And also, you know, why would we say that studying the teachings has the same weight as not killing for example, or generosity, the, the next one that we'll get to. How can this be? And, and how can learning be something that serves other people in society? 
as well as the other four obviously do. Um, so it's interesting. I mean, one way that we might interpret this is that putting in the effort to have a good knowledge or understanding of the Dharma teachings changes the mind in certain beneficial ways. So remember that back then they weren't reading books like we are. The, the teachings hadn't even been written down yet. The Buddha was still just speaking them. And then even after that, they were carried on by oral tradition for several centuries. So it wasn't exactly, you know, this word means heard. People would have had to go and actually listen to a teacher in order to get the teachings. So it was an active process. You'd also have to pay attention because you weren't taking notes People were illiterate. So, you know, if you wanted to hear these, you would have to go and listen to a master and remember what was said and well enough that you could think about it later or that you could put it into practice. So it was an active process. And doing that process helps align the mind with the principles of the teachings in a certain way. I like to say that we kind of have a, we come to have a mind of Dharma that, um, from, from studying or from hearing, it just kind of gets absorbed and such that we would begin to apply that lens to our experience. You know, more often we would think in terms of uh, the qualities that we've been hearing about in Dharma talks. So there's a way in which um, if our mind has been shaped by what we've heard and by thinking about these teachings, what does that mean? How might I put that into practice? etc., then um, that serves us, of course, and it also serves others because we'll have in mind qualities like virtue and generosity and the other things that are talked about in the teachings. So if our mind is kind of operating along those lines, we become beneficial for those around us. And we're, we're going to have to transform our whole being. So that includes our cognitive mind. It's not that we need to just get rid of all the thoughts or, you know, shut out the brain. This is all about the heart or it's all about the body, whatever it is that we think it's about. We are going to have to include our thinking mind in the process of awakening. And I think this, this learning or sutta is meant to capture that dimension where we actively use our cognitive abilities. Okay. And then the, um, the fourth one is generosity, and the, the Pali word there, you may have heard dana as generosity, but the Pali word is chaga in this case. And so we say here, here a noble disciple dwells at home with a heart devoid of the stain of miserliness, freely generous, open-handed, delighting in relinquishment, devoted to charity, delighting in giving and sharing. So chaga, it, dana tends to be the actual act of giving, and the even the gift itself is called the dana that we're giving, whereas chaga is said to be the mind state behind giving. So it's the motivation to give, it's the inspiration to give. Um, we notice that this um, phrasing around it has a lot of emotional words, delighting in relinquishment, devoted to charity, delighting in giving and sharing, Freely generous, you know, this is about the mind and the heart. It's what comes before we would actually do an act of giving. And it's so needed at this time, you know, when, when, when it is or feels like a time of scarcity, then this ten, the tendency to, is to hold on and withdraw. Um, and that's exactly the opposite of the movement that's beneficial 
of being willing to open the hands and reach out and offer things. So generosity helps us give even when we don't feel like we have that much. And the, the Buddha was clear in his teachings that generosity is encouraged regardless of our level of wealth. So even um, people who are uh, very poor benefit, very actually benefit more than wealthy people from giving because it's a bigger sacrifice for them. So this was, by the way, an Autopindica's specialty was generosity. That was what apparently what he was working on in this lifetime. And consider that he continued to offer alms. He, he had just bought a monastery for the Buddha, and but then he lost all his money. So in a sense, um, the monks had much more than he did, a place to stay. Uh, but he still gave them broken rice gruel when he could. And that was very meritorious for him you know, to offer, even when you have almost nothing. And then there's wisdom, Anya. So here, a noble disciple is wise. He possesses the wisdom that discerns arising and passing away, which is noble and penetrative and leads to the complete destruction of suffering. So that's kind of an interesting definition of wisdom. We might not think of that right away, but it's actually fairly common in the Buddhist teachings that wisdom is equated with seeing impermanence, with seeing arising and passing away. And so for the maybe for the purposes now of trying to understand why this is a form of wealth and why it's beneficial for both us and for others, we can point out that people who pay attention to how much arises and passes in life, um, they're more likely to be able to handle surprises and shocks like a pandemic, for example, if, we, if we're very attached to things just rolling along and being how we want them to be and kind of in our default mode, then when things change suddenly, we can be upset about that and do unskillful things or, you know, or suffer ourselves. Whereas people who have paid attention in their life to the way things actually come and go quite a lot and life is not predictable and not so reliable and they don't go the way we want so often. Um, there can be some real wisdom there. Even if you don't meditate or do any studying, any of the other things, just be paying attention to coming and going of things in life and like understanding that that's a, a basic principle of how things work. Um, very helpful. You know, people who have a sense of the flow of life can stay calmer when there are large shifts. So, you know, whether it's a global pandemic or a more personal thing like a diagnosis, uh, we can handle it better if we're uh, wise about change. So even with the current state of the world, I can say that these five things are undiminished in me, you know, as things shift and change. And maybe you can feel the same. You know, would any of these five be automatically affected by some big external change, not necessarily, not really. If we're paying attention and we value them and we you know, hold them as part of our character and integrity. So they can be, um, oh, and then uh, in the other reading for today, AN 7.7, where the Buddha was talking to uh, Aga, it's a good name, Aga, um, he points out that these five qualities are a type of wealth that can't be taken away. He literally says that in that other reading that we had. So these five have great potential on the path. You know, they can be built and they can be strengthened. Um, 
even in, in adverse conditions, and they partake of the path to awakening. So they do help fortify the mind and the heart for freedom. Um, Bhikkhu Bodhi actually wrote an essay about how these five could be used as the basis for an educational system. So um, this underscores their importance for creating a healthy society. Uh, I don't think that's coming from the teachings, but it was kind of his own uh, extension of how they're used in the teachings is that he thought they would be a good basis for a school system uh, in raising children to have these as values in approaching their lives. So the sutta ends with verses that tie it all together. Um, you know, when one has faith in the Tathagata, unshakable and well-established and virtuous behavior that is good, loved and praised by the noble ones, when one has confidence in the Sangha and one's view has been straightened out, they say one is not poor, that one's life is not lived in vain. Therefore, an intelligent person, remembering the Buddha's teaching, should be intent on faith and virtuous behavior, confidence and vision of the Dharma. So I started with that story about Anattapindika. You might wonder, what's the end? So it turns out that Anattapindika's material wealth was eventually restored with the help of some devas, some gods. So, um, but this was, you know, far, by far the less important teaching than the inner wealth that he was carrying. You know, he had all that external wealth and he gave a lot and we could, and that in itself is admirable. But then when it was all taken away, um, he came forth and still showed that he had the generosity, he had the virtue, he had the faith. So he had things that, um, you know, all of these good qualities came to the fore. And we could see that he actually had inner wealth, not just outer wealth. So, you know, it's important for us that we think about this as the conditions of the world keep changing. And who knows what will happen with our material wealth, but we can be working on this inner wealth. So that's a sort of an overview. Uh, I'm curious if you have any questions about that or comments or thoughts that came forth while you were listening to that. You can raise your Zoom hand. It's under the reactions at the bottom. There's a little raise hand button. Yeah, Debbie. Thank you, Kim. Um, and everyone else here on a Wednesday night. I don't know what a deva is. I mean, I have a, in my mind what a deva is. Can you um, talk about that more? Because it refers to other gods and goddesses. I don't know. I, I'm curious. Okay, sure. Yeah, that's a good point. Because actually, we're going to have a reading later that refers to the deities. Um, and these are definitely, these are kind of, you know, words that we've had to put in to translate things. But the, the concept is different than our Western idea of certainly of, of one God and even of, um, multiple gods, you know, like in the, you know, maybe more like the Greek pantheon or something. But nonetheless, the, uh, the, the devas, the gods or the deities or whatever we would want to call them, 
um, they have a particular um, relationship in the sort of cosmos of, of Buddhist understanding. And again, none of this is something that is being offered as a belief, but it's just, you know, it's part of what we inherit in the tradition. We can find our relationship to it. It's kind of nice to have these elements, mysterious elements. Um, so the, the gods are, they're just one realm of, of birth that we can take, circumstances that we can come into. There's the gods, there's the human realm, there's animals, there's um, jealous gods or asuras, as they're called. They're like gods that have too much ego. And then there are hungry ghosts and hell beings. So there are six realms. And they can be thought of as literal or they can be thought of as psychological states that we pass through. But um, the, the devas are actually in a very nice position. They are, they get to, you get to be in that realm, which is very pleasant, um, very easeful, uh, very good um, because of merit, because of doing good deeds in life, actually. Uh, one can be reborn in the Deva realm. And that's considered a reasonable goal for lay people, actually, in traditional uh, Buddhist understanding or Buddhist religion, let's say. So um, the Devas got there because they were either very good and meritorious or also because they were good meditators. If you're um, very good at concentration, you can be reborn in a Deva realm, even if you don't have any insight and an awakening. So, but the key, uh, the last thing I'll say in order not to get into a huge cosmological thing is that none of these realms are, are permanent. All of, you know, Davis live for a long time and they have a great life and they don't have much pain and so forth, but that is not the goal. Um, that will end when that merit, when that karmic stream runs out of its potential, then you get reborn somewhere else <laughs> as a human or you fall all the way to hell. Who knows? Uh, until a person has insight, um, they're stuck in this round of just having one of these six births again and again and again. Does that help? Yeah, so, so the, the Davis are considered, you know, worth reflecting on. They are where we would go if we lived a really good life, according to religious understanding. And so we'll have them actually in our next set of readings is that there's a reflection on the Davis that includes these five things. So I'm kind of glad you asked that. Now we have a background on that and you can relate to it how you want. I'm not uh, specifying anything, but I think it's an interesting sutta that we'll, we'll read for next time. Thanks for asking. Rob. Hi, Kim. And thanks, Debbie, for asking that question. I've never thought to ask that question. Um, <clears throat> when I first started uh, getting into Buddhism, I noticed there were numbered lists and I st- I was going to memorize some, and then I was like, there's a lot of numbered lists. And so I was trying to think of which is the most, uh, you know, which priority of the lists. And then as you were going through the um, resources, I noticed there's a list within the list, I think, in the second one that it sounded like the five precepts were in Mm -hmm. the second resource. So what is the layers? Is that where they that originated um, in these five resources or? Oh, actually, the five lay precepts are talked about in many places in the yeah. suttas. Um, they're not exactly. So, the, no, the, the, the short answer is I, d- I don't believe they originated from this list. Um, they're found in other places. It's more common that um, what's talked about is that a lay person of 
of good virtue or of good character does these things naturally. That's actually usually how they're talked about. The idea of making them into the five precepts that we go and we commit to at the beginning of a retreat or that we formally take uh, with a teacher or a monastic is a little bit of a later addition. You don't see that action happening in the early canon, but those those five were extracted by the passages that says, lay people of good character act in this way. Mm. I have a question. I, yeah, I okay. forgot to, to say also, with all the numbered lists, um, it just occurred to me that maybe because it was an oral tradition, it was easy to remember like, oh, yes, I got all five, you know, or otherwise you'd just be reciting things and not sure if you made it to the end. Um, is that why there yeah. are so many numbers? Yeah, that's that's considered one of the reasons that they are they are numerically organized uh, for easy memorization. And then you can also transplant them into other places. They're like um, cut and paste, you know, little boilerplate things that you can put. So yeah, it's probably related to that, and for ease of memory for practitioners to, you know, as well as the reciters who were carrying the tradition. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes people are a little put off by all the lists, you know, with Buddhism, just like, you know, learn by numbers or something. And uh, if if they feel like they're not inspiring, you don't need to try to memorize or think in terms of lists, but they are, they are really handy. And if you're able to just kind of relax around the uh, study sounding nature of them, uh, I've actually found them to be really useful. I'll talk a little bit more about that when we get to the um, study method that we'll be talking about for this week. Okay, well, maybe with that, then we should do a little bit of meditation. So um, let's, let's sit for a few minutes and... Just You can just sit right where you are and allow yourself to settle in. And if you're comfortable doing so, you can close your eyes. And just feel yourself sitting in your chair or on your cushion. Maybe you're lying down. If you want, you can kind of consciously lean back or at least feel how balanced you can be on your cushion or chair. Sometimes looking at the screen, you lean forward a little bit. And so it's nice to make sure that you're really balanced and upright. Shoulders over hips, ears over shoulders. And then inviting some ease and softening in the body, allowing your shoulders to sink, your eyes to relax in the eye sockets. Letting the arms and hands relax. down through the chest, 
heart area, the rib cage, just letting that soften and open. Letting the belly be soft. And releasing any bracing in the legs. So just a sense of your body at ease sitting here. And now I'll invite a a brief reflection to recall your inspiration for meditation practice or for Dharma practice or Buddhist practice, however you frame that. Perhaps there's some knowledge or sense or intuition that the inner life is valuable for you. And not just for you, maybe for those around you too. And bringing in also whatever understanding you have about non-harming and what that means in your life, trying to live a life of care and non-harming and even actively doing good if possible. So adding that in as a background reflection And then establishing mindfulness in the mind. So knowing that you're sitting here, knowing your experience as it rises. Being with the body and the mind as they are now in a non-judgmental way. Perhaps connecting with the sensation of breathing as a simple home base for the mind. We don't do any controlling of the breath or changing of it. We're just being aware of it, allowing it to be fully as it is. might consider the phrase give yourself to the breath so giving yourself over to the gentle flow of breathing as a whole body experience 
meet their thoughts, which is quite normal. They can just be in the background. Nothing needs to stop or not happen, but we can aim to not be caught up. Just continue with mindfulness, maybe using the breath as the anchor in the present moment. I'm taking a few minutes to be with the arising and passing of experience, the impermanence, the inconstancy. normal flow. Perhaps sensing how just being with the arising and passing of changing flow of experience is somehow strengthening the heart, its ability to be with the vicissitudes of life. And even if there's thinking coming in, just patiently returning to the breath, also strengthens the integrity of our presence as an inner resource.
And as we near the end of this meditation, just re-evoking our reflective stance. Consider the good fortune of having encountered meditation instructions in your life. Not everyone does. So we can appreciate the forms of wealth. Yeah, appreciate any forms of wealth that you carry that wouldn't change much with changes in outer circumstance. What would still be there if there were changes externally? And evoking those, appreciating those. Okay, so now uh, we have a chance for you to talk among yourselves. We'll have a short breakout group. So if you're thinking, oh no, breakout groups, I hope you'll stay on because it will be short. Or if you're thinking, yay, breakout groups, um, now's the time. So you can be happy. Um, so it's just a chance to reflect a little bit among uh, yourselves about these five. So the question, there are two questions, and I can put them in the chat also in a moment, are among these five, faith, virtue, learning, generosity, and wisdom, what feels like the most reliable form of inner wealth that you carry? And is there maybe one that also seems less clear than the others? And then um, the second question, just uh, if you wanted to bring in some creativity, are there other forms of spiritual wealth for you? Do you feel like there's something else that could have been on the list? But uh, don't get to that one until you talk a little bit about, you know, among yourselves about these five. So which one seems the clearest for you and which one seems maybe less clear? So you can think about that for a moment while I set up the groups.
Okay, enjoy. So, welcome back. Nice to see all of you. And um, I wonder if you want to say anything about what you shared. Any wisdom that uh, could be brought to a larger group. Yeah, Mary. Taking me a moment to unmute. I was really touched in our group by how different it was for everyone. Kind of the entryway into what was the main wealth was really different. And when everybody spoke, it was it was very, very touching how our life situations So it it just made me see how individual the path was and how our experience and our personal lives can kind of orient us in a certain direction that moves in a a very deep and profound way. And I I just found it very touching to to hear other people talk about that. So it was lovely. Oh, wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Um, Leslie. I would say also that I found it moving and partly what was moving was that the three of us shared a sense of wisdom as the area that was most challenging. Ah. And um, we had a different sense of how wisdom might be manifest in our lives, I think, in part related to differences in age and life circumstances. But um, the area of wisdom is the one that calls to all three of us for further development. Thank you. So sometimes there's a diversity among how all the different qualities seem to be different among different people and sometimes there's a shared quality either the one that you all are attracted to or the one that seems more challenging well actually also one of the group and i um i i don't want to speak too much without asking permission but we shared um the same areas of focus which were um, generosity and virtue Mm. and how closely connected they were. Wonderful. Yeah. Those sound like a rich discussion. Other thoughts? Did anybody identify any resources that weren't on the list? I'm sure there are. I just threw in that question so that people wouldn't feel like, uh, oh, we're confined to this rigid list. I thought maybe mindfulness um, could be considered a resource. Um, just in my own relatively brief and surface level reflection. Yeah, uh, Rob. Um, 
I wasn't sure if mindfulness was um, one that was included in the original list, but I suggested something similar, which was um, physical uh, exertion, exercise, um, and not cognitive. So kind of, it's uh, mindful of my body, I guess, but just letting the body do go what I like. I, I'm a runner and I go out running and I'm not, there's no concepts involved. And so uh, it feels uh, also beneficial to my well-being. So, okay. So maybe we could call that something like um, uh, other ways of knowing, you know, besides the standard way. Uh, I would hesitate to place anything that's related to the body as a, um, a dharmic resource because, of course, the body is quite unreliable. It could uh, change rapidly uh, and permanently at any moment. <laughs> so, um, But that skill that you have of knowing that you're kind of rational, the, the regular kind of knowing that is so praised or mostly worked on in our society, mostly emphasized, knowing that that's not the only possibility can be an enormous resource when we have uh, changes in our life that are hard for the cognitive mind to grasp, essentially. So I think I think there's something to what you said. Yeah. Thanks. And Pat. It, you know, this didn't come up. We talked about meditation and then um, time came to an end. Uh, we had to come back. But what I'm wondering about is including music. Um, music as like appreciation of music as a resource in a sense. Well, music is a meditation because in uh, the Western, I'm, well, of course, the chanting, you know, the Buddhists do chants, but also in the Western contemplatives, um Singing, plain chant, those forms are also very much used as well. Yeah, I think we would want to look toward the mind state that it evokes. So a sense of yeah. maybe faith or wonder or concentration actually was one thing that uh, chant in particular does. I'm not sure about other kinds of music, but there are mind states that those induce that could be uh, that are spiritually beneficial in some cases. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for bringing that in also. Um, Amber. Um, I think you actually just answered it. Um, I was going to bring up concentration. Um, mm-hmm. I find that it can help kind of get me out of a tricky mind state sometimes if I concentrate on something specific, even to Rob's point, like when I used to be a runner just kind of concentrating on the pavement in front of me um, or even doing like a concentration meditation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then we would pull that back again to the inner quality that's evoked. There is maybe the ability to direct the attention in the way that you want it to so that your attention doesn't scatter off. If you're, you don't get drawn into things, you have an, uh, an ability to focus and uh, keep the mind organized. That's actually vitally important for being able to navigate life. I keep wanting to pull it back to the mind states because 
you know, even if even with something like music, we could go deaf tomorrow, you know, and then that's not there. So it's like, what is what is there that that couldn't be taken away uh, under various circumstances? That so I'm encouraging the, the use of dramatic thinking, but um, definitely any kind of training of the mind uh, is you know, that's the, the point of, of what we do in this practice is to help serve ourselves and others with a trained mind instead of a more random mind like we start with. Pat, is that a new hand or is that was that up from before? Oh, I should take take it out. Oh, okay. <laughs> I couldn't it remember. It could be a new hand if no one else is speaking. Um, I'm yeah, a body worker and I do somatic body work, uh-huh. which is interiorly focused. Um, and many times people have lost faculties and capacities when they do this work. So, and it very much focuses and concentrates your mind. I don't, mm-hmm. We don't talk about it in, in those terms, but as I go through the Buddhist practice, it's very clear that it's mm, helpful. Yeah. Yeah, in training. Many, many spiritual traditions as well as many healing traditions have some form of concentration in them because it's just known to be such a beneficial way to organize the mind, let's say, a way to organize our energies. Yeah. Yeah, see, you guys have the intuitive sense that um, of finding these, these various inner resources. Beautiful. Beautiful. And this list of five is just, just one way. Okay, so I said that there would be two uh, focuses on each class, one something related to these five, and then also something related to how um, studying the suttas or or, uh, learning the teachings, uh, yeah, studying can support our practice. Uh, One of the... um, one of the philosophies, let's say, behind the Sati Center itself is that um, we are enriched in our our meditation practice and our daily life practice by having some knowledge of the, the teachings that are behind what we're practicing. And I very much have found that to be true just on my own path. So I'm very authentically happy to um, teach that to others. So... Um, but sometimes it's not always obvious, you know, people, uh, you know, you can just practice for a long time and never know anything about the suttas. There are people like that or people who have read and studied a lot, thought about it, but haven't quite put it into practice, haven't made that leap to the application. Um, so I want to talk, what, I, what we'll talk about tonight is the study method of taking a list, examining how each item works in life and also how the items connect together. This is a very basic approach, uh, since there are so many lists, as Rob pointed out to us earlier. Um, you know, why not? You know, you can read a list and just be like, okay, one, two, three, four, five, or one, two, three, or however long the list is. Can I memorize it? What's it, you know, when, where is it used? Something like that. But it's also really useful to make it practical. Why is this set gathered together? Do they relate to each other in some way? Does the order matter? What do they look like in my life? You know, I can read the word faith. And if I think, well, I'm not really a religious person, but actually everybody has something that they're trusting in going through life. Um, 
You have confidence in something. Do you know what that is? Where are you placing your confidence? Is it the most valuable place? So we have to see um, in our own life how each of these plays out. And why is this useful? Why is it um, beneficial in a sense? It turns out that actually just noticing, like just noticing these five, if you go out in your daily life tomorrow and kind of check how do faith, virtue, learning, generosity, and wisdom show up, just um, noticing them will foster those qualities and also will balance them in certain ways. Once we start paying attention to them, um, they start, we start seeing them more. Kind of like the way when you get interested in something new, you suddenly start seeing a bunch of references to it. Um, you know, like, I don't know, you get interested in chess and then suddenly you realize, oh, there's that phrase checkmate somebody. It's used in common parlance. You never really noticed it before, but suddenly, you know, you have, um, you have the interest. And so you start seeing these references. And in the same way, when you bring a list to mind, you'll start seeing those qualities out in life. So I know that um, for me, when I look into a list carefully and try to try to discern how it works, why it, why those things put together, etc., uh, I often find that I understand better why the list is in that order. I don't think there's only one exact order, but I do see in the lists that the order is not arbitrary. Let's say it that way. So later items do tend to build from earlier ones or function as the deepening of the earlier ones in general. Um, so that's one thing that you can see in the lists. Wisdom is at the end because it's a deepening of the other ones, for example. I also see um, somewhat like what you just talked about in your groups. I see which ones feel immediately familiar and which ones feel less clear. You know, I have a list of five and maybe three of them I can get. And then another one I can kind of get. And then the fifth one, I'll be like, huh, I never really thought about that. Like, well, how does that play out or something like that? And so then uh, when I pay attention to all five. And that means I'm noticing that fifth one that I wasn't as clear about. When I shore that one up a little bit by paying attention to it, all the other ones actually integrate and strengthen also because they come as a set. So we start to um, see that these lists are a complete, I don't know, unit of Dharma, let's say something like that. So maybe as an example related to this list, I remember when I first learned about it, and just read it abstractly, I wondered why generosity was in the fourth position. Because generosity in at least almost every other list, if not every other list it's in, is first. It's always first. Generosity is the foundation of the path. It's the first parami. It's the first, you know, etc. There's always generosity at the beginning. And so I looked at this and I said, no, it starts with Faith, and you don't even get to generosity until the fourth out of five. Why is that? Um, so the word, but then I, I understood that the word is not actually dana. The word is chaga, right? It's the, remember I said it was the mental quality that's behind giving. It's the mental disposition that inspires us or encourages us to give. And so it's this attitude of mind that supports giving. And in that sense, if you look at other meanings of chaga, this word, where else does that appear? It actually is um, has to do also with letting go of clinging, 
letting go of deep, you know, deeper forms of letting go on the path than uh, offering a gift, a material gift, for example. And so um, it ends up being later because it's, um, you have to have some kind of understanding that grasping and compulsion is painful. You have to have an understanding that letting go, that's what Chaga, another translation of Chaga is letting go. That's what allows us to give. We've let go in our mind so we can give it away. But we can also let go of unwholesome mental qualities. We can let go of hindrances in order to concentrate the mind. And we can let go of the sources of suffering in order to become free. So we have to have um, some, some deeper understanding. We have to have gone through the foundations of faith and virtue and some understanding of the teachings before we get to chaga, letting go before we can be ready to move on to that step. So, um, yeah, there's, there's kind of, I, I can at least explain it in that way that I can, I can come to an understanding of why generosity is later in that list because it's really more about the letting go. Okay. So then, um, I can recommend some practice based on this method. So if you wanted to, look at these in the coming weeks. Um, and I will ask if anybody wants to report anything at the beginning of next class, you could try actually noticing the items that are named in the sutta. So faith or confidence, virtue, learning, generosity, or letting go, and wisdom, those five, um, both on and off the cushion. Can you see all of them? How do they appear in your particular life? which ones are clearer and which ones less clear. And then you could also, um, just noticing is good, but you could also take one or two, two at the most, maybe just one, that kind of feel important to you right now. Just uh, intuitively see which of them draws your attention. And then see if you can do some little thing to strengthen it each day. You know, is there some way that we could bring that in. It doesn't have to be anything dramatic. What's more important is that it's conscious. So like if you read an online article on in Tricycle Magazine or something, can you remember, oh, I'm cultivating learning at this moment. I'm reading something about the Dharma. Or if you compliment a friend and you say, wow, you know, thank you so much. It was, you know, I really appreciate the way you helped. That's generosity. You're giving them your um, compliment or maybe um, your meditation includes some acknowledgement of faith or inspiration that's what I did at the beginning of the guided meditation is I um, evoked your inspiration for practice that was meant to touch into confidence or faith that quality so you know see for yourself how it works see if there's some interest in um, cultivating one of these or more and kind of see how it unfolds over the coming weeks. And then, uh, coming week, let's say. And then in addition to that, um, you're going to receive another handout by email, probably tomorrow or something, that has a few more readings uh, that uh, add some additional teachings that have this list of five in them. And that, that will be our basis for what we talk about next week. Um, and next time, of course, we'll also... We'll have another focus on these five and we'll have another method of working with the lists besides this one of 
taking a list and going through the items and really starting to understand how they relate. So let me also just for completeness, um, put into the chat, the um, Donna link for this class in case that's thing you wanted to act on. Yeah, if you click on that. Um, we have a few minutes, so I wanted to see if there are any more questions at this point or comments. Is the homework clear? Yeah, and it's, I shouldn't use that word because it's meant to be fun and interesting and, and inspirational. It's not at all just an assignment, but I think you'll find, you'll learn something from it. Thanks for the little heart, Prerana. <laughs> Very nice. Uh, Mary, your hand is up. Someone in our group, um, it might have been Rob, was asking the question about asking a question about the difference between learning and wisdom. I, it's easier for me to see the connection in a sense than it is to see. Well, I think it would be really helpful if you could answer that question. Mm. I guess I would say that um, learning is maybe a little bit prior to wisdom. So learning, I think, does is really um, starts at least in the cognitive realm, and it um, uh, it's something that we that we hear, right? So we're taking in words, language. It's something cognitive, and then we do have to process that and understand it, and maybe memorize it and recite it. What was that definition of learning that I read? It's, you know, memorized it, recited it, and penetrated it well by view. So it sort of goes deeper and deeper. And near the end, uh, learning does become actually embodied and more like what we would call wisdom, which is a, a short definition of wisdom besides seeing, arising, and passing might be understood experience, something like that. So I think learning leads toward wisdom and you've actually um, perfectly previewed something that we'll talk about in the third session. This is an area that I've um, looked into a bit, and we're going to delve a little bit more into learning because I think it's, it's, first of all, it's unusual. Most people, most lists don't have learning on them. So for those of you who are familiar with a bunch of the other lists, like the Eightfold Path or the Seven Factors of Awakening or um, the Five Faculties, you don't see learning on any of those lists. It's a fairly rare item. And so I looked into it at one point as to you know, how it's really used in the teachings. And I'm going to give you a piece of writing about that later. But um, hopefully that gives some direction. Learning leads to wisdom and can be linked to wisdom. So you were wise to uh, see that connection. We have to allow it to do that, though. You know, we have to allow it to sink in, come to be understood deeper in our being. Okay, wonderful. Well, um, that could be it for this evening. It's um, delightful to see everyone, and I hope you'll have an enjoyable week of practice, and you'll get an email in the next day or two for the readings. And I'll hope to see you next week. Take care.